Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Good day, everyone, and welcome to episode two of this four-part Weber Wenzel Fraud podcast series. Joining us once again for episode two is Zalda Swanepoel and Lionel van Tonder. And today we'll be sharing details about fraud in the private sector um, and also in the public sector. So let's start off with you, Lionel. Uh, you know, given your history in the public sector and involvement in various forensic investigations, as well as the knowledge you do have on the various types of fraud, how does this relate to claims associated uh, with organizations such as the such as UIF, the Unemployment Insurance Fund, and also uh, the Social Security Agency? Yes, so unfortunately, the South African public sector has been associated with fraud since we can remember. You just need to open the newspapers or switch on the news channel, and there will be a report on fraud in the public sector. Now, the purpose of the UIF is to give short-term relief to workers when they become unemployed or unable to work because of, for example, maternity adoption, parental leave, illness. It also provides relief, in fact, to dependents of the deceased contributor. All employees and their employers are responsible for contributions to the UIF. It's a total of 2% of income, 1% paid by the employer and 1% by the employee. So in instances where you're then unable to work, you can submit documentation to the UIF and claim from the UIF. The amount you can claim is limited to a specific amount, which is reviewed by National Treasury and the UIF regularly. So if you submit false documentation to obtain the benefit, that will be fraud. So you would further recall the during the COVID-19 pandemic, the UIF launched the Temporary Employer-Employee Relief Scheme. It was known as TERS. Now, the TERS was a 12-month maximum solution, which benefits employers and employees in companies facing distress, specifically during the COVID-19 pandemic. It enabled the retention of employment by such companies in a manner which has little cost to the employer and which ensures employees continue to receive an income. Now, I think because this was instituted on an urgent basis by government, it created the opportunity for fraud to occur. And I'll remind you of the three main elements of the fraud triangle being opportunity, incentive, and rationalization. So during October 2021, approximately $63 billion was paid out to organizations. The initial budget was for TERS was $40 million. So the payout in 17 months exceeded the budget by $23 million. Interesting. At this point, there were faulty payments identified to organizations, which were associated with the following incorrect banking details, incorrect ID or passport numbers, no declarations found, applications for people that's deceased, underage, incarcerated, or even government employees, and incorrect salary received during lockdown. So this misrepresentation to the TERS fund in order to claim the benefit amounts to fraud. So now we fast forward two years later in September 23, it was reported that during May 2023, the SIU signed acknowledgments of debt worth almost 100 million rand with organizations to pay back funds to the UIF received from TERS. So we as a nation 
is still dealing with the fallout of the fraudulent claims and payouts relating to TERS. As of September 2023, the SIU has recovered roughly 71 million since, since it commenced its investigations in June 21. One interesting matter is where the UIF indicated that one of their biggest cases was a director of a company who submitted 6,000 TERS claims and was paid 111 million in total. After the investigation, it was discovered that the director used 1,200 IDs of people who didn't work for the company. In fact, he was the only person registered at the company and by these claims enriched himself with 111 million rand in total. Thanks, Lionel. Uh, some of these statistics are, are truly <laughs> shocking. And I guess this will then be similar in the case uh, of, of Sasa claims. Indeed, in Sasa claims, there are similar risks and opportunities for fraud to occur. So the South African Social Security Agency, known as SASA, they distribute grants to individuals who need financial assistance from the government. Now, in order to qualify, applicants are required to earn below a certain threshold and have assets below a certain amount. SASA then distributes a number of different grants, such as old age pension, care dependency grants, disability grants, and child support grants. Now, in this field, on 6 October 23, it was reported in a newsletter article that SASA suffered a potential loss of 50 million in the past two years due to fraud. It was reported further that at least 40 SASA officials were impl- implicated in suspected cases of fraud, which totaled 701. Now, these cases range from, but not limited, to the fraudulent collection of grants, the submission of disability grant applications with falsified medical information and the illicit collection of child support grants. So according to SASA's annual report of 23, which has been tabled in Parliament, 233 billion was paid out in social grants during the year, with a number of grant beneficiaries standing at 18.8 million as at the end of March 2023. It's a lot of money. And if you take 50.5 million over the past two years, were linked to fraud, it's just a travesty of justice, and something must be done about that. Thank you, Lionel. Um, in your opinion and in your experience, how would insurers and um, entities such as the UIF and, and SASA manage this increasing risk on their businesses? Um, and how would they potentially go about protecting themselves from these unlawful acts, uh, such as these insurance fraud instances? Yeah, thanks, Chris. So whenever we talk about fraud to our clients, it always there's always the talk of prevention, detection, and investigation of fraudulent activities of, or claims in the cases of insurance. And each insurer deals with that in a specific way. Some insurers would, for example, only pursue a claim for damages against the policy holder where large amounts of payouts have been made. Others do not pursue the loss as, as a result of the fraud at all, but instead repudiate the claim and or cancel the policyholder's policy cover. It can be very difficult to prove fraud, and the onus of proving such an allegation lies with the insurer. Therefore, where appropriate, insurers would appoint forensic specialists like ourselves to conduct extensive investigations to obtain the proof necessary to support the suspicion and or the allegation, and that will justify the action in terms of that. Of course, the more prudent course of action would be to preempt or prevent an act of fraud and to put a stop to it before a loss is suffered. For example, payment of a claim. It's therefore recommended, especially as Zelda has mentioned, significant rise in fraudulent claims 
and the shocking statistics around it that insurers ought to proactively implement measures and identify risks within its business model rather than reactively respond to fraud as your chances of recovering the loss is not guaranteed. And by the way, it's cheaper to prevent than to investigate. This is where us as forensic experts can help uh, the insurance and to other clients. Great. Thank you, Lionel. Um, Zelda, coming to you, is there any technological means that insurers might be able to to use or implement in their business to, to detect fraud and to mitigate against some of these risks? Um, yes, certainly. I think um, technology um, is our friend in, in these instances. And many tools have been developed over time due to the significant rise in, um, in insurance fraud and the cost of it to the insurance industry. Um, some examples include um, predictive and prescriptive analytics, where they use these tools to flag trends of suspicious claims, and also to track claims that require an investigation. You'll also these days see that there are layered voice analysis software that helps to determine whether a person is nervous um, when submitting a claim or whether a claim requires more in-depth validation. Then also there's a lot of data validation these days, cross-checking of data from various sources. Um, And of course, if there is a system that creates an alert, if there is a person who has previously um, been proven to have committed a fraud, that it would assist in mitigating the fraud or to more intrusively interrogate whether or not the person is an acceptable risk. This would, of course, require information regarding fraudulent behavior to be made available across various role players in the industry, and this obviously has other consequences. Um, So certainly, yes, technology is one of the ways in which to deal with and assist with the detecting and mitigation of risk relating to fraud. That, that's really fascinating. Um, I'm just thinking about myself. I, t- I think I tend to have a nervous voice. I, I don't know if my insurer would <laughs> checks all my claims that I submit. Um, I would like us to also just quickly touch on some of the remedies um, that might be available to insurers as victims of these um, fraudulent uh, claims and also how these remedies might assist them with uh, the recoupment of the losses that they might have suffered. Certainly, yes. So Lionel has mentioned this and it really is true and one can't stress it enough. Prevention is better than cure. And luckily in the insurance industry, um, considering that insurance relationships between clients and insurers are of a contractual nature, it is possible for insurance companies with well-drafted insurance, um, what we call forfeiture clauses, to entitle the insurers to rely on those clauses to um, repudiate and reject claims and in some instances to recover um, proceeds of fraudulent payouts in the event that a person has perpetrated a fraud. So those clauses are obviously the first um, area that um, an insurer can utilize. Then, of course, considering that fraud is a a criminal offense, the Criminal Procedure Act makes provision for these criminal acts to be reported um, and to, to for compensation orders to be made by a court. The downside of that, of course, is that the, the, it has to go through a criminal pr- procedure, um, which, as we all know, takes a long time um, to do and is costly for the insurance industry. Also, insurers can pursue civil claims. We've actually seen quite a lot of those recently. 
Um, and that's also more expensive. But in, in instances where the claim amounts are large, which we see quite often, especially in the life side, um, it may be um, necessary for the insurers to pursue a civil claim um, for damages and for recoupment of um, payouts pursuant to fraudulent devices. If I may add to that, Zelda, I, we all know that there's also, specifically in criminal matters, the legislator has enacted the Prevention of Organized Crime Act. It's known as POCA. Part of that, the purpose was to take the profit out of crime and the powers provided to the NPA or the Asset Forfeiture Unit is to apply to court for the so-called confiscation and forfeiture orders. And that basically means the assets and or the proceeds of the crime can be seized by government, literally taking out the profit from the crime, which is also a very good remedy. But as you said, it's a criminal process. We know it takes time, but it's the asset forfeiture unit has been very successful over the last years in recouping uh, fraudulent uh, funds. Lionel, and then maybe um, just something else. What we what is also a further remedy? It's not all, always that um, um, the fraud is only committed by insureds. There's also sometimes an instance where the employees um, in an organisation is part of a syndicate. In those instances, obviously, there's other employment remedies which we haven't touched on, but it goes back to also these laws, Lionel, that you've mentioned. But just to mention that the fraud is not always only at the level of the consumer or policyholder, but many times goes into the broader spectrum, um, including employees at, at the insurer. Yes, Zelda, I mean, there's various surveys that shows, as you say now, that a lot of frauds are committed by way of collusion, by employees and external third parties. We see that every day, and that is often very difficult to solve. Well, thank you, Lionel and Zelda. Um, these were really great insights, and um, thank you for your time, and thank you for sharing your, your experience and your expertise in this regard. This brings us to the end of our second episode of the four-part Weber Wenzel Fraud podcast series. And if you missed the first episode, you can find it on our website or any of our social media pages. And thank you for listening. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.